we thank you this morning for the opportunity to once again open our hearts and open our minds to the Word of God. We, we today again are aware of the amazing privilege we have to study your Word and to learn of you. And Lord, especially regarding this book and this study, we are really desirous, hungry to have you speak to us and teach us. And I pray you would open the eyes of our heart today, Father, that we would see Jesus and, and have our hearts moved and our lives changed through the revelation of the Son of God. And we thank you today for this, this hour, and we just uh, give it to you. And for this, the following time of gathering to worship and to hear the word of God preached, we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are launching into the book of Revelation now, into the actual text we began last week. And we're going to pick up this morning in verse 9. And we are going to go through the end of the chapter 1, I think. I hope. There's a lot to cover, um, so I'm going to probably go fairly fast. But I don't want to go too fast because I don't want us to miss uh, the heart of what is being said. I want to just say as we begin, we will not have a class next week. Um, next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, so there's no class next week. We'll pick up the following Sunday again with our study through the book. So if you know anybody that normally comes and they're not here right now, maybe you could just um, remind them, let them know there's no class next week. I'm going to read verses 9 through the end of, the, of chapter 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand upon me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
So now we're going to launch into this first vision. There are seven through the book of Revelation, as you remember, overlapping visions, recapitulating visions. I like that word. <clears throat> and so we're going to see how they uh, overlap and touch each other and give different vantage points of the same truths throughout the book. This first vision, though, I really believe is the key. It's the key to the rest of the book. Because what John now sees is he sees, he sees the Son of God revealed as the Son of Man, glorified. And, and what he sees now will set the tone for the rest of the book of Revelation. As I was studying and praying this week, this, this, I was so uh, overcome with this text. Uh, I mean, it honestly led me just to prolong times of worship. Um, not just because of the, the words, but more because of as I began to meditate and think about the implication and the meaning of these things, some of which I'll talk to you about this morning, uh, it moved me deeply. And uh, it, 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 it awakened some, some things in me, I feel, that, that God wants to awaken in the church. And I believe that's part of what he was doing with John, is he's allowing John to see something that, that is going to move him now as he writes the rest of the book, the rest of what he's going to see. And it becomes now the theme that will carry through the rest of the book of Revelation, and we're going to look at it now. We're going to kind of go do a, a, an ex exegetical look at this text this morning, verse by verse, and try to break it down. He begins by saying in verse 9, John, our brother and partner in the tribulation and the patient endurance and the kingdom. Actually, the order is the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So here we have... The message of the book of Revelation in one statement. The first part of it is basically that we share a brotherhood and a partnership in Christ. John doesn't set himself apart as an apostle. But he says, essentially, what I'm experiencing is typical of what all believers will experience. This is just now we're going to see common fare for those who follow Jesus. It's interesting in the Greek, there is only one article, a definite article for the kingdom, tribulation, and patient endurance. There is not a the in front of each of them. But in a sense, what we find is that they are all one. They are all connected. They all come together. In other words, you cannot have one without the other. Can you hear this? The kingdom and suffering go together. A kingdom people will suffer tribulation. And in fact, Paul was told this by the Lord himself. Because we're sojourners, because we're citizens of another kingdom, we're going to need patient endurance in this trek. It's a kingdom of sojourners walking along a narrow path, patiently enduring the wrath of the enemy and the wrath of the world. Listen, all the way to the end. 
So this notion about the kingdom being all about dominion and power and ruling and reigning, although those things are true, without mentioning tribulation and suffering is unbiblical. The two John is telling us here, the three go together. The kingdom and tri- leads to tribulation. Pursuit of the kingdom leads to tribulation, which demands patient endurance. And I think the church today is out of whack in the Western world. The absence of preaching and teaching about the inevitability of suffering and experiencing tribulation and therefore the need to patiently endure, not mentioning it all, is, is a great error in the church and it's unbiblical preaching. And I think we're setting the church up for a great falling away, which again Jesus prophesies will take place because the times will become hard. John, speaking from his present experience, he's exiled on a small island because of his faith. And he has a very vivid memory of his friends who were now, most of them, all of them, martyred. Think about that. And he has a vivid memory of his Lord crucified before his own eyes. We need a reality check in America. Of course, we don't want persecution. But if we're truly kingdom people, and we need to probably break that down, what that really means at some point. And we've done that in the past. We need to do it again in the future. But if we are truly a kingdom people, we're going to need to respect, expect and realize that we're going to experience tribulation, trial, suffering which is what I preached a few weeks ago. And then we cannot forget then that necessitates patient endurance. Yeah, Dino. Too, that was, hang um, on, buddy. Let's hang, about hand you the mic. I was just thinking about the steel. We were talking about the suffering. I think one of the things that most people overlook with this is that John at this point was exiled, but he was exiled after he had been boiled in oil. And most people don't know that, but John had been boiled in oil and survived and then was uh, um, um, stuck on the Isle of Patmos. So when we talk about, you know, everybody being martyred at this point and the patient endurance, John knows what he's talking about. I can't imagine what even trying to walk around after being boiled in oil would be no, like. No, that's true. So. Yeah, it's a miracle that he would have lived, obviously. And John says, I'm here on account of the word of God. Two things. I'm here on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Two different things, but the two go together, obviously. Who is that? It's interesting, though, as I was reading this, it was interesting to me how, how the apostles often, and, and Paul did this again and again, and this is interesting, reduced their lives to a very basic and concise purpose. They reduced the purpose of their lives 
very succinctly. They didn't have this complicated perspective of what life was to be. They didn't have all these factors influencing their perspective and their, their motives and their desires and their purpose for their own lives. They always reduced them to very simple and concise truths. And John says, mine is basically this. I'm here because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's my life. And then something very remarkable happens in verse 10. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's probably worshiping. This is the first time the, word, the term the Lord's day is used in scripture. And he's talking about the day the Lord was raised, which would have been a Sunday, which is the first day of the week, which, which is why we're gathered here today. So it became then common for the church to gather on the Lord's day. No longer was the Sabbath their focus, although they didn't ignore it, but it was no longer their primary focus. The day was now the Lord's day in the week, the first day of the week. When John is in the Spirit, he says, what does that mean? We use that kind of casually. What does it mean to be in the Spirit? Anybody have any thoughts? Communing with God. Prayer. How does one get in the Spirit? Are you automatically in the Spirit? Those are things we need to ask ourselves. Is it because the Spirit of God indwells us that that means that immediately we are always in the Spirit? Or is there something that we need to foster and facilitate and cultivate to be people who know how to live in the Spirit? I would say it is that. I don't think you can go from simply having your mind be somewhere and then being immediately in the Spirit just because you say, now I'm going to be in the Spirit. I think it's an attitude of heart. But John had learned how to live his life and be and cultivate this being in the Spirit. And he hears a voice behind him, and he says it's a voice, the sound of a loud trumpet. The sound of a loud trumpet. Now, we're going to see throughout the book of Revelation words and terms used that will be repeated. And there, as, we, as Dean did such a good job of teaching us in the beginning of this class, uh, there's going to be a lot of symbolism throughout the book of Revelation. And so we're not seeing things literally as what they are. We're not seeing uh, literal things that, that are going to be described by John, but they're going to be oftentimes symbolic. They're going to be vision. They're going to be things that represent other truths. And so the trumpet will be a common theme throughout the book of Revelation. There will actually be at a, at one of the visions of seven trumpets. The trumpet is probably more closely associated with power than any other musical instrument. This power symbolism is particularly related to wars and to rulers. Not the drums, the trumpet, Dean, uh, Kev. The drum is just more irritating for the, other, for the enemy. Bad drummers are totally irritating. So the symbolism is related to rulers and to, and to war. And, and the sound of the trumpet has always denoted a military strength. Whether this was a, a trumpet signaling battle or calling the people of God to, 
or calling an army to prepare themselves. The trumpets sound. And so Jesus' voice sounds that way to John, which is telling us that what's coming after this is the, is the call to, is, is the recognition of the, of the engagement of warfare. And that's going to be a theme through the book of this war that's happening and has taken place to a great degree already. So the voice of Christ trumpets the triumphant, victorious Son of Man's purposes for his church and for the ultimate demise. This is awesome of his enemies. And again, that's the theme. It's the call of God of triumph to the church through the ages and ultimately the destruction of the enemies of God. So John is now told to write. He says, write what you see. So we know this is a letter that's going to be sent now to these churches. And he says, and send it to the seven churches. And he turns now, and what he sees, he sees seven golden lampstands. And it says, and in their midst, listen, one like, notice the word like, a son of man. He turns and he sees seven golden lampstands, in the, and in their midst, one like a son of man. Now, again, in Revelation, and we talked about this a little bit last week, numbers are really important. The number seven is very, very key through the book of Revelation. Anybody remember what does seven represent in Scripture? Perfection and completeness. Listen, both physically and spiritually. And the reason it, it is representing that is because it derives much of its meaning from being directly tied to God's creation in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. The word created is used seven times describing God's creative work in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. There are seven days in a week. God's Sabbath is the seventh day. The Bible as a whole was originally broken into seven major divisions. The law, the prophets, the writings, the gospels and acts, the general epistles, the epistles of Paul and the book of Revelation. It's no accident. So we learn now an important truth regarding the seven churches which the lampstands represent. Jesus will tell us that at the end of this chapter. We find this truth regarding the seven churches, and this is important as we head into the next chapter, that they represent the whole church. The seven churches represent the whole church, the complete church, the church in its entirety. Though they are, of course, individual churches that are being written to and spoken to, they represent the church throughout the entire church age. Not just seven periods of church history, which a lot of people teach when they teach Revelation and they study the seven letters to the churches. They say, well, these, these are seven different periods of church history. And of course, now the seventh period is Laodicea, and we must be living in the Laodicean age. What we're going to see is that all seven of these churches represent the church in its entirety. And I would have to say that all seven of the things that are spoken to the churches in chapters 2 and 3 relate to us in this church today. Some have left their first love. Some are lukewarm. Some are tolerating sexual immorality in their own lives. 
Some are persevering well. All the things we're going to study in the next few weeks from chapters 2 and 3 are true of the church throughout the church history, of the church in its entirety, and of the church today. Now, some will characterize more than others, but this is an important truth as we study the letters. The lampstands are the seven churches. And what do they mean? Why lampstands? What's the importance of a lampstand? Of course, the meaning is that you are the light of the world. The first time we see a lampstand in the Bible is in Exodus 25, as God will give detailed instruction to Moses about golden lampstands that are to be made and to be placed in the tabernacle that the Israelites were building. So that's the first time we see anything about a lampstand. It's in Exodus. And it's interesting, if you read the text in Exodus, how precise God is in explaining how he wants these lampstands made. And I've often said this, when people are casual about how we do church. I always wonder at that. Because if God is specific in everything else, why would he be unspecific about church? About church polity? About church worship? About church leadership? About accountability within the relational aspect? That's not casual to God. And I think the fact that he was so detailed about the lampstands is a picture of God's specificity regarding his desire for his church. Gold, it was made, were made of gold. Gold, as we know, was the most valuable of all metals. And we find also that gold is often spoken of as being tested by fire in Scripture. In fact, the Bible compares the testing of gold with the testing of our faith in the church. So it's no coincidence that the lampstands are gold because that gold had to have been tested by fire. So we're back again to this theme, this concept of the kingdom, the tribulation, and the patient endurance. And out of the testing comes the true people of God. Out of the testing comes the true people of God. In the, in the tabernacle, the lampstand was placed in the, in the holy place, with the first place that it, they went into, the priests went into, and they, they gave light day and night. And of course, that was pointing to Christ as being the light of the world. Jesus is called the light of the world. He calls himself the light of the world. John calls him the light of the world in chapter 1 of his gospel. The lampstand pointing to Christ, but also pointing to the fact that the church is now the light of the world on the earth. I thought about that's an amazing thing. Just as Jesus was the light of the world when he had come into the world, the church is now to be the light of the world. So how can we keep our voices quiet? Not obnoxiously, not militant, not belligerent, but prophetic. Speaking truth when no one else will, right? Standing for righteousness, 
in, a, in an unrighteous society. Saying, no, there is no gray. There's black and white. This is wrong and this is right. This is the lie. This is the truth. This is murder. This is life. Right? The light of the world. And I think this also represents the fact that because we are the light of the world, that the church right now is at the center of God's purposes on the earth. What is the most important entity on the earth right now? It's the church of Jesus Christ. I've said this so many times. The best leaders in the world are in the church. They are. There's some great world leaders. Don't get me wrong. But I truly believe the, the best and the most important leaders on the earth right now are leaders in the church because the church is the most important entity on the earth right now. Why? Because it's the light of the world. Because it's the guidepost to truth. And men and women who lead in the church are hugely important. Which is why we need to pray for our leaders. Because we're going to be continually under attack as leaders. Because the enemy understands what I'm talking about. You guys have any thoughts on that? Anybody want to add anything? The church is at the center of the purposes of God on the earth. Not America. Not the UN. No, it's the church. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like, like the Son of Man. Now, this term comes from John, uh, Daniel 7. Let's turn to Daniel 7, 13 for a minute. We're going to be referring, Dino told us this, we're going to be looking at Daniel back and forth a little bit through this study because there's much that is in Daniel that is taken from Daniel by, you know, the, in the vision. Let's see, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Right after Ezekiel. Daniel 7, verse 13. Notice the similarity between what Daniel sees and what John sees. Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions. Here we go again, another man having visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, notice the word again, like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Interesting. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And John now sees very similarly one like a son of man. So this, this term, son of man, is, is loaded with messianic connotation. And it means much more simply than the humanity aspect or the humanity nature of Christ. It speaks of his dominion, of his rule, of his power, of his reign. In fact, this is one of the Lord's favorite 
titles for himself in the New Testament. It's used 81 times in the New Testament. And most of those times are by Jesus himself. When John says he sees one like the Son of Man, he's saying there, there is something so similar about him as, and yet so different. It's though John says, I'm seeing Jesus, but he's not the same. He's exalted. He's magnificent. He's glorious. He's, I can hardly believe what I'm seeing. And as I was thinking about this, I was realizing this exalted state will be ours as well. Yes, Bob. The particular, excuse me, the particular Bible I brought today was New King James, yeah. and both um, Daniel and John in Revelation refers to like the Son of Man, which to me has a different connotation than like a son of man. True, it does. I don't know what the Greek is. Do you know, Dean? That's a good point, though. I appreciate you pointing that out, because it does have a different emphasis then. Yeah, it, to me, it means the, it signifies that there's only conceivably one son of man, whereas a son of man, to me, can be interpreted as meaning there could be more than one. Yes, let me, let me look real quick. Let's see if there is any delineation in the Greek. Well, the, 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 the Greek interlinear has a son. Um, now, there may not be an article in the Greek uh, because it goes right from one word representing the lampstands. Oh, no, from I saw one like. that. There's one word for that term in the Greek right to the word son, which is huias, and there's no, maybe no article in front of it. So that could be the matter of the interpret of the translators, which is what we often find, right, in Scripture. But the ESV is a son of man, so, um, but you're right, it would have a different implication. But I would not think that John would think that it would be more than one. John is clearly re re looking at and, and recalling Daniel's vision. And he has an understanding of what Daniel was speaking, that Daniel was speaking of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ himself. So it's, it's likely that, that there was no confusion in John's mind that there might be more than one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very true, very true. And so that's why we're highly dependent on translators to do. They do the best they can, thank God, right? And we're grateful for that. But you're right, we have to do our own thinking and, and studying. But I was just realizing again that this, this is going to be what we're going to be like. We're going to be in this, we're not going to be in the exalted, glorified, same sense that Jesus is. But we're going to be, when the scripture says, when we see him, we will be like him. So we are going to be in his image. Which is what God created man to be in the beginning, did he not? 
And, at, and, at, and when we are resurrected, we will enter into our glorified state. We will be in the image of Jesus like he is. So that means we're going to wreck. I'm going to say, hey, that is Nate. He has hair now, but it's Nate. I recognize him because I know his heart. I know who he is. And he looks the same, but he looks different. It's going to be amazing. And that's what John was dealing with at some level. What Daniel saw in his vision was this future mysterious exalted figure who would bring an end to the succession of pagan world domination. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. But what was distant for Daniel was now a reality and is a reality through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to John and for us. I was reading Daniel again this week, too, and I was going, oh, man, this is such a good book. It's such a good book. It's so pertinent for today. And we need to remember also that what, this is an important truth for us in this book of Revelation at large, is that what John's vision is of Jesus, what he sees of Jesus, is not what he looks like, but who he is. He's not giving us a picture of what Jesus will look like when we see him. He's not going to appear to us in the same way that John is describing him in Revelation. He's describing who Jesus Christ is. It represents the character. What he sees represents the character and the nature and the work of Christ. So he sees him clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest, always worn by priests. Interesting. Christ, our great high priest, in the middle of the lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, our Christ, our great high priest, ever making intercession for us. Trimming, <laughs> trimming the, the wick. <laughs> Keeping them lit. His hair was white like snow. And this corresponds to the vision in Daniel 7 of the Ancient of Days. It's interesting. So on the one hand, what John sees of the Son of Man is similar to Daniel's vision in, in Daniel 7. But in Daniel's vision, the Son of Man is not the Ancient of Days. There are two. And yet the Ancient of Days has the white hair, and it's almost as though what John is seeing is the unity of the Godhead. There are three distinct persons, yet what? One God. They're distinct persons to Daniel, but the white hair signifies holiness and wisdom and the purity of the eternal one. The eternal one who was and is and is to come. The ancient of days is, as Jesus said, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or was said of him, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is also the eternal one. And his eyes are like a flame of fire. Again, notice the word like. Not they were a flame of fire. They were like a flame of fire. Again, this corresponds to Daniel. Now turn to Daniel 10. We'll see, again, a similar vision in Daniel. 
Ezekiel, Daniel. Uh, Daniel 10. Verses 5 and 6. The heading of this chapter of this chapter is Daniel's terrifying vision of a man. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Ufaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of many waters. No, the sound of a multitude, but so similar. This is where I kind of got, I just got overwhelmed as I was thinking about this vision that both John saw and what Daniel saw. The flame of fire What's, the rep- what's that mean? His eyes can see the secrets of men's hearts. There's nothing hidden from him. He knows our thoughts. He knows the intents. Listen, the intents of our heart. I don't even know the intent of my heart. Often. Until it's too late, he knows the intent of our heart. And so John sees this omniscient gaze, and it pierces him. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in fire. Again, refinement, a picture of holiness, a picture of purity. Bronze is a harder metal than silver or gold, which are more precious. And again, bronze was used to make weapons for war. So there's another reference here through the revelation of of Jesus in the vision of warfare. The Lord Jesus is girded, in a sense, as the high priest even for war. And of course, fire represents judgment. The Son of Man is coming to judge the earth and all that is in it. Look at Jude with me, just one page before. In verse 14, in referencing false prophets Jude is speaking of, he says in verse 14, he says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. And he said this, Enoch prophesies this, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Again, interesting the language. Not ten thousand, but ten thousands. Ten thousands of his holy ones. And Revelation will speak of thousands and thousands. Ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all. And to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
repeatedly the use of the word ungodly, ungodly, ungodliness, ungodly, against the things of God. Judgment is coming. And John sees this revelation of the Son of Man as one who will come and execute judgment against all ungodliness. I don't know about you, but that's, that's a, for me, a very sobering, sobering thought. I want to be on the right side of that judgment. Yeah, Dino, you do too. Can you head the mic back there? You can hardly wait to say it. It's going to be really good. No, I was just, you were talking about when you read this that it really impacted you, and, and I have to say that it did as well for me. But one of the things that I always thought about was that this vision is in the context of Jesus among the lampstands. Yeah. And so when he talks about his feet were like burnished bronze, it, it means to execute judgment among the lampstands in this particular space. And we see that a lot going through the next several chapters yeah. where he executes judgment on the church. And there was two things that I thought of. One is, is that judgment in, with Christ simply means to, to declare what is right, to make a, a right declaration. And so when we hear the word judgment as Christians, we usually cringe. But Jude says it very clearly that he executes. There's a different judgment that Christ executes on the ungodly as opposed to the churches. True. And when you read through the churches, you see that there is a there is a, a mitigation. He says, this is what I have against you, but, so repent, yeah, yeah. but repent. And so this idea that he comes and he walks among us with judgment to make what is not according to him what is right according to him because of his care and love for us. Right. So that's Something that's very, very profound. But the other thought I was thinking of is that you said something earlier that I thought was really important. You said, how can the church keep quiet? And I think the reason that we keep quiet is because we don't see Jesus this way. That's very true. I think that's exactly right. We see the meek and mild Jesus yeah, yeah, hanging yeah. on a cross. Social you know. justice warrior. Right. This is, when he rose, he rose yes. a lion. And he is among the lamp, the lampstands, the church is executing his judgment, seeing what's in our heart. Yeah. The, the word of his truth goes and cuts the marrow of who we are. He walks in judgment among us. And I think when we really get a hold of that, mm. it, it'll change the way we actually conduct our affairs on a day-to-day -day basis. That's excellent. Thanks. That's good. And then he hears his voice about like the roar of many waters. We saw in Daniel, it, the voice sounded like a multitude. Same thought, the voice of authority, the voice of, of, of omnipotence. So the whole picture that John is seeing is of, is of this exalted, glorified Christ and the place that he now has in heaven, seated at the Father's right hand, all power and authority being given to him, and the church, the church now in, under his care on the earth. As we continue to live our lives as, as these lampstands, revealing the truth of God and, and then engaging the, 
the wrath of the enemy and the wrath of the world, God's hand upon us and us patiently persevering and enduring. But this, the fact that Jesus is who he is is what gives us such encouragement and such comfort and such hope. Because, he, listen, brothers and sisters, he's awesome. As Dean said, if we could see him, it would change how we live. And then in his right hand, he held seven stars, from, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun, shining in full strength. And the stars, he tells us, are the seven angels or messengers of the seven churches. And what this means is really, really controversially, uh, controversial and debated. What are the seven stars? What do they represent? The Greek word is angelos, A-N-G-E-L-O-S, angelos, which obviously can be translated angel. The, mess, the word for, the me, for messenger is, is, is the same. They are the messengers, Jesus tells us. But what does that mean? Are they human messengers? Some people say, well, they're apostles over churches. Some people say, no, they're the pastors of the local churches. Some people say they're the angel that is over each local church. Somehow there's an angel that is responsible for each church, perhaps. All of those could be true. But there's one thing that I, I, that I read this week that I, I saw that this kind of makes sense to me. The, the key is that in the, in, the, in the letters that he writes, the rebuke is to the angel, not to the church. As though he's speaking to the angel, as though he were speaking to the church. So is it possible that the seven stars are, in fact, the seven churches again that he holds in his right hand? This one commentator says he believes they are, and I, I'm thinking it's very possible. And they're in his right hand, which represents that they're under his care, under his authority, the right hand representing authority. So the seven lampstands of the churches, clearly, Jesus tells us, and then the seven stars, he says, are the angels of the seven churches. Are they the same thing or are they different? I'm not sure. But possibly they are the churches. And what do stars do? They reflect light. The lampstands, on the one hand, reflect his presence. And the stars reflect his care, his protection, his authority. Possibly, huh? And then from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Of course, we know what this represents. The word of God. Capability of God's word to divide between bone and marrow, between thoughts and intentions of the heart. And it's cut, it's two-edged on the one hand, it's redemptive on the other hand, it destroys that which is against God, the truth of God. And then in verses 17 through 20 is the response, and we'll have to do this quickly, but this is so powerful and so beautiful. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And that would be my response too, I would say. 
there's a lot of mumbo-jumbo, prophetic, third-world vision junk going on in the church today. Third heaven, not third world, third, third heaven visions where people are saying, oh, I, I saw the Lord, I was with the Lord, I came and the Lord was speaking to me. And, and, I, and, I, and You would not hardly be able to speak if that were to take place. Kev? Paul wasn't permitted to he speak. He couldn't speak of what he saw, that's right. He was forbidden to speak of what he saw. This is too glorious. John fell at his feet as dead. Same thing happened to Saul. He fell. Same thing happened to Isaiah. Same thing happened to Moses. Same thing happened to other men of God. They fell as though dead. Daniel fell as though dead when he saw these things. The vision of God, of Jesus Christ, of the Son of Man. And we have to remember, this is John, who was the closest of all people, probably earthly, to Jesus himself. This is Jesus' best friend, possibly, while he was on the earth. And even John himself fell as though a dead man when he saw him. You would think he would have been happy to see him. He wasn't happy with what he saw. He was terrified. Terrified because of his awesomeness and of his glory and of his holiness and of his power and of his beauty and of his majesty. Of his supremacy, he was terrified seeing Jesus as he really was. Not terrified and, and afraid of him, but terrified at the, at, the, at the reality of this risen Christ. And I thought this week, I thought, we have no idea what the day of the Lord will be like when he returns. No idea. Men who shake their fists, I read something this week about some man mocking the the, the fact that there might be a God and what he would say to him when he saw him. And I've been thinking to myself, you have no idea, dude. You are going to be on your face as though a dead or maybe on your back. And it's no accident that in Scripture, the day of the Lord is called the great and terrible day <laughs> of the Lord. It's a great and terrible day. Day. But it's interesting, John's response is different than the men in the, in the garden the night that Jesus was arrested. When they saw, or when they heard, rather, the words coming out of Jesus' mouth with the authority of who he was, what happened to them? They fell backward. John fell forward. That's the difference, I think, between those that, are, that know him and those who don't. Maybe on that great and terrible day when that judgment comes, when, when men see him as he is, they will fall backward as though dead if they are not in Christ. We, when we see him, may fall on our faces before him. And that's what Dean was even talking about a minute ago with this issue of judgment. We are in Christ. We are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He has become my righteousness. Because of faith in him. I will not stand before the judgment seat outside of his righteousness. What an amazing truth. And then the Lord lays his hand on John and he says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. And these are the words that the church must hear throughout the ages and continue to hear. Don't be afraid. 
He is the first and the last. He's the alpha and the omega of our salvation. He's the beginning and the end and everything in between. He's the living one. He says, I'm the living one. I died, but I'm alive forevermore. We're going we're to worship next Sunday remembering these truths. And then he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. And I thought this is such an amazing truth. I have the keys of death and Hades. See, death is, is a prison. But sin will keep a man in or a woman. Christ has the keys to that prison. He has overcome death. He has overcome the grave. He has overcome the powers of hell. He holds the keys. Keys representing authority, right? Final authority. And he is saying, death cannot hold me. And this is what he's saying to you and me. Therefore, death cannot hold you. Don't be afraid. Jesus says this at one point in his conversion conversation with his disciples. He says, why should you fear men? All they can do is kill the body. Fear God, who has the power to kill not only destroy not only the body, but the soul. Jesus holds the keys. And we are in Christ. And then he says, write these things. And so the rest of this book is the outworking of this glorious vision that John has. It's the history. It's the history throughout the ages of the lampstands of God. It's the story. The book of Revelation is the story of the kingdom and the tribulation and patient endurance of the church. And not only is it the story of the history of the church, it's the story of the faithfulness of our God all the way to the end. And so that's why when Jesus said in Matthew 28 to his disciples, go and preach this gospel to the ends of the earth, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That takes on new meaning after you see this vision that John has, doesn't it? So next week, no class, two weeks. Dino is going to pick up in chapter 2, and we're going to start looking at the churches. Let's stand and pray. Let's stand before this awesome king. Lord Jesus, we stand in your presence because you alone are the worthy one. You are awesome in beauty and in majesty, Lord. And I'm thankful that even though my human eyes have not seen, my heart has seen you. I'm thankful that John saw what no man can see and that you told him to write it down so that we might see. And I pray that it would change the way that we live, Lord, as we understand these truths. Pray that we would see your faithfulness in our lives, Lord, every single day. Because your word is true, Lord. What you say is true. What you will do is true. 
I pray the study of this book, Lord, will change us. Change the way we see the world we live in and change the way we understand the church in the world. I pray that it will give us greater confidence and greater faith, greater comfort and greater encouragement as we pursue the kingdom, as we encounter tribulation and as we endure patiently through it. Give us grace. Gather the church today to worship you, Lord. May our voices be lifted in worship of you. You alone are worthy. We love you and we honor you, Lord, today. And we thank you, Father, for Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man. And it's in his great name that we pray. Amen. Amen.